That's a great line. When we shall stand in glory, we will see his face. You ever think what the first morning in heaven is going to be like? I don't think we're going to move around a lot. I don't think we'll be checking out our quarters. I don't think we'll move more than maybe a foot or so. That first morning in heaven, when we stand in glory and to see his face, just isn't part of it, but thinking of back in 2010 when my brother passed away and we're standing there at his um, casket in the foyer of the church down in Mount Laurel and I'm holding my dad and he was just crying and he says, do you think, do you think Rich has seen mom? And um, I said, dad, he has just stepped into the glory of heaven. I said, imagine what that's like. The throne talked about in Revelation 4, Revelation 21, that sea of glass and the rainbow, the emerald, the 24 elders and the four um, living creatures and the anthem, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty and the radiance and you see the lamb that has died, your redeemer. I said, I don't think he's looking around to see who else is there. I said, I don't know when he'll discover mom's there. Or for that matter, when we're all there, will it be 100 years, maybe 1,000, 10,000? And I know the tribulation's in there. I don't think earth will continue for 10,000. But when I stand in glory and to see his face, Turn with me, please, to Luke 20, 27 to 38. I wanted to choose a passage that encompasses this week that we find ourselves in, in um, oh, thank you, um, find ourselves here in this week prior to the crucifixion of Christ. And I wanted to land, I landed on this for a reason. Luke 20, 37, 27 to 38. I want us to look at the resurrection. But Christ talks about the resurrection. So at the end, probably half of my, maybe 30 minutes of my message will be look, looking at this passage. Then I want to take the last 10 minutes, 12 minutes, maybe I'll shorten the front end. And I want to have this implication. So what? We have this hope of glory. We have the hope of the resurrection. But how does it impact our lives? How does it have bearing on our lives? What, what should be the result of this? The result of the resurrection. So I want to talk about tie in the resurrection, but prior to the resurrection, what has to happen? Unless we have the rapture, we have to die, right? So really my two exciting non-morbid points are how to die well. <laughs> so we'll get there. Luke 20, let me read 27 to 38. There came to him some Pharisees, those who denied that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, Having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the women died also. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. 
but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. You know, mankind in general has always had an anticipation of some sort of the next life, of an afterlife. I know some will try to, try to deny that, but God has just built into mankind that there's just this expectation. There's something more to this life. This isn't all there is. James Dwight Dana, a professor at Yale, geologist at Yale in the late 1800s, made this statement. And he says, I can't believe that God would create man and then desert him at the grave. And what he was saying is there's there is more, that this isn't all that we get. And we look at it throughout history and we see glimpses of civilizations that believe that. The ancient Egypt civilization with the second dynasty, I was looking it up, Pharaoh Cheops, who died, you probably know him, right? Who died 4,500 years ago. Um, and he, they did, archaeologists discovered his grave. Uh, he built supposedly the first great pyramid. And there was a solo boat in, um, in, in the pyramid and apparently intended, they believe, for him to sail into the next life um, through the heavens into the next life. And then you have other civilizations like the ancient Greeks would place a coin in a person's mouth and it was believed that then the corpse could use that coin to pay for his fare as he would cross the mystic river into the next life. Or you had the Native um, Americans would bury the, the warrior would be buried along with a pony and a set of arrows and a bow so that he could ride and hunt in the next life in the happy hunting grounds. Um, even the Eskimos, it is said, um, when an Eskimo child died, they would actually bury a pup or a dog with him, with the child, so that it could guide them through the cold wonderland. Um, Norsemen. Um, would bury a dead hero's horse and on it goes. Ben Franklin, right down here in uh, historic Philadelphia, right at his, his grave site is right across from the Mint, um, the, the Philadelphia United States Treasury Mint that we have down there. And here's what's on his epitaph. Um, I don't think he was a Christian. He seemed to be more deistic in his thinking. Um, but here's what he wrote. The body of Ben Franklin, printer, parenthesis, like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out, and script, and script of its littering and gilding, end of quote, lies here food for worms. Yet the work itself shall not be lost, for it will be, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more beautiful edition, corrected and amended by its author. The Jews believed in an afterlife. And we see glimpses of that in Psalm 16:10. It's talked about that in Psalm 73:24 and Daniel 12 verse 2, looking at a future resurrection. Um, but there's a group of people that did not believe. They were Jewish, but they did not believe in the resurrection. That's the Sadducees. And we see them introduced here in verse 27. Let me just give you a two-minute background of the, of the Sadducees so we know where they're coming from. The Sadduc there are three sects, three major sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots. And what do you remember about the Sadducees? You probably heard this a bullet. Go ahead, Greg. <laughs> They're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. Um, 
But you have these groups of people. But the Sadducees were really called, consider the aristocrats of Judaism. Um, they were influential, um, though they didn't believe in the resurrection. But they were powerful because they were able to be given in charge of the temple. And if you're in charge of the temple, remember the people that would fleece sell the lambs and the sacrificial animals at a high cost, or they would be the money exchangers because you could only use temple currency. They were the ones that were doing that. So they were the, the money grubbers. They were the greedy ones that were charging exorbitant fees and really robbing the people. Um, they also, besides being known for not believing in the resurrection, they were individuals that, that thought highly of Moses and but beyond that, basically believing in the Pentateuch, the first five books, um, they, wouldn't, they really didn't put much authority in the prophets. They didn't have a view of a Messiah. They weren't looking for a Messiah that didn't fit into their theology. And so they simply believing that there's no um, resurrection. What do you think? How do you think that they lived in this world? You know, if you don't believe there's a resurrection, you don't believe that there's a God that's really holding you accountable morally for good or evil and that there's no account for your sins, there's no afterlife, you're going to live like that commercial, go for all the gusto. They went for everything. They lived for the now, and they were very worldly. They are really sensual. So they're pretty worldly people. Um, they were also compromisers with Judaism. They bought into... Um, Let's do all we can for ourselves, even if that means cuddling up to the Roman authorities, and they did. They were pro-Roman, but they would have to be to have all the authority that was given to them. They're the ones, by the way, that also had the temple guard. Um, so they're the, they were given some political and religious freedom by the, Jew, by the Romans, um, and they were in charge of much of, of, um, of Jewish life. But still, they were pretty much hated, hated by by the Pharisees and others. Now that, as the backdrop, we step into chapter 20. If you were to look, there are three questions that are asked. Um, verse 2, verse 22, and verse 27. Jesus is, is besieged by questions. They are, they are pursuing him. A lot of questions. They're trying to trap him. In fact, the Sadducees were probably happy when they saw that the Pharisees and the scribes blew it. They couldn't trap Jesus. So then I'll step up to the plate here in 28. So they step up probably with a little bit of a cocky attitude because they want to like slam Jesus, this religious leader that they believe isn't genuine and they don't care about him, but they also an opportunity for them to make their, their um, opponents, the Pharisees, look pretty foolish. So they come up and they, they ask Jesus this question. Um, teacher, Moses, and we read it in, in 28 and, and 29. Um, if we were to take the time and we won't go there, but in Deuteronomy 25, it's outlined something called the Leveret Law of Marriage. And it states that if a, um, a woman has her husband die prior to having a male child, then it was the responsibility of her husband's brother or the closest of kin to take her as his wife and then to be able to produce a male child that would take his name, not the biological new father's name. Um, who do you remember of that? Two examples in the Old Testament. Who do we have? Okay, we have Ruth. We have Boaz um, in chapter 4, and then we have back in the Genesis story of Judah's son Onan, O-N-A-N, o -N -A -N, um, when he saw that his brother died, and now he had to step up 
so to speak, to the plate. He didn't want that. He didn't want to have her as his wife because my name's not passed on, just going to be given. So that was practice back then. So we have the question posed in 29, whose wife is she going to be? Now, if Jesus believed in um, marriage, then just one wife would have been good enough. I mean, two wives would have been good enough for their question, right? If he, I'm sorry, if he believed in marriage after death, he believes in marriage. Don't, don't misquote me because you're going to tie that in with my comment that I made Sunday night about my, the women in my life. We don't want you to, to do that. Jesus believed in marriage, but if he believed that it was going to happen after death, all right, then two would have been good. But they drive the point home. Seven wives. You imagine the, ludic- the, the ludic- ludicrousy of that, that question. Seven wives? I mean, what was this woman, a, a killer of her husbands? Or, or maybe, like, she's just bad luck. And they keep dying on her, and she's like, please, I don't want to have another husband. You're killing me, almost. But she keeps giving these husbands. Or how about this scene? Here you are wandering in heven. You're in heaven. Oh, my goodness. Who am, I to, who am I to hang out with here? Is it my first wife, Mary? I mean, she was my favorite, but was Anne? But, you know, Anne, or how about Sally? Or is it on the list goes? I mean, it's bizarre. And so they, they're waiting now for Jesus' response. What will he say? But really, they have established a straw man, uh, a straw man that Jesus would quickly um, light a fire to, um, so we get to verse 34. We drop down. And Jesus said to them, so he's going to answer them. And I have highlighted 34 sons of this age, and the word this age, and then the word that age in verse 35. Jesus is going to make a contrast here. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. If we could read that for a moment. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine talks about gives a little bit different angle, but it gives a fuller quote. Um, if we, I don't know if we have that. Matthew 22, um, 29 talks about the other parallel passage. And it says, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They had a problem here that they didn't understand two aspects. They didn't understand the scriptures and Jesus is about to enlighten them with the scriptures, but they also had a weak understanding of the power of God. Um, total side, side note, I think that's where most of our struggles in life can be answered. God, let me, maybe I should change that and say all of them. God, help me to know the scriptures better. How many know what your answer is to this situation in my life? But also the power of God. God, you're bigger than, than my problems. You're bigger than what I'm going through right now. God, God, you could help me through that. And that's one of the reasons I th- I've told you about it a couple of years or so ago. A couple of years ago, and I do it every time now, I drive to a side of school. We talk about growing a big view of God. Because if we could grow, if we could have a big understanding of God, a big view of God, when it comes to that day of, of, of challenge, Genesis 39, Joseph, when it comes to, we will have such a big view that it will keep us from sin because we'll understand who God and what he's capable of. Well, Christ answers their question and addresses their question, answers it by, by speaking how they're just ignorant of God's power. 
So he says in verse 34, um, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. He agrees. Yep, that's the way it is here. You know, God expected, God wanted us to marry. Genesis chapter 2, procreate, have children. And so he agrees with them. That's the children of this age. But now he's about to talk about, but, but it's different in that age, making a clear distinction. This age versus that age. And he says, the children, um, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. How do you get worthy to attain to that age? Is that not what this whole season is about? There's a redeemer, and the redeemer came because we could not earn our way to heaven. We could not accomplish God's favor through our good works. We could not do it through, through our good efforts and how we would treat other people and how we would try to keep the law because we would continually be falling short because we're sinners. So those that are worthy, you become worthy not by what we can do, but we become worthy by our faith not in ourselves, but our faith in the one that has done it all, right? We become worthy by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as that redeemer. God, I'm getting out of the saving business. I can't save myself. I'm not going to trust in what I can do. I'm going to put my faith. I'm going to transfer my trust into what Christ has done. So those that have done that, those that have put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're considered worthy. And he's speaking, the sons of that age, the ones that are worthy, the ones that have put their faith and trust in Christ. And let me talk about now what it's going to be like for them in heaven. And all of us in this room have many family members, I'm sure, that have put their faith and trust or loved ones or friends or acquaintances that have preceded us already. And here we're seeing Christ speaking of those that are worthy to attain to that age. Resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. He's just slamming them right then. You're not under understanding. It's not going to be that way in the future. It's not going to be that way in heaven. They're not going to marry. There's not going to be um, childbearing. What is the purpose for marriage? I mean, I get this. Are many, there are several purposes. But multiply and fill the earth. There's no dying. So we're not the need to multiply and fill heaven. God will, may I say this respectfully, will have all of the people that he wants, that he ordained, they will all be there. So he doesn't need to have marriage and children, but not, that's not going to happen. Everyone will be there. It's also interesting that this resurrection, he says in verse 36, for they cannot die anymore. There will be no need to replace there will be no need to, to add because we've lost them. They're not going to die anymore. So this resurrection that he's talking about here is, is not a resurrection of the dead. You ready? It's a resurrection from the dead. Yeah, they're dead people, but it's not of the dead. It's being resurrected from the dead. No longer will death, will death have a claim on them. No longer will death have a have a have a have a, um, a, uh, a response to them. It says in Revelation twenty one four, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more. 
those that have put their faith and trust in Christ as their Savior, they will enjoy the beauty of God's creation. Death no longer will have a claim upon them. Death no longer will be able to to grab them and have a, a right upon them. It will have been defeated. So he's correcting them that you're not understanding. You don't have a big view of the power of God. You think life has to continue as it is, but it's not going to continue that way. God has a bigger plan. God has a greater plan. There's not going to be marriage. He's not going to have life continue as you know it right now. Then he describes their sons of God. They're sons of God not at that point. We become a son of God when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. John 1.12 says that. To them, many be, receive him, become sons of God. So we become sons of God at that moment. But then he says, we're going to be like the angels. That sons of God, he says, will be similar, similar to the angels in the sense of, of, of having no marriage and maybe gender. We could debate that at another point. But the point of eternality, and we're not going to be married because the angels aren't given. We're going to have a body. Angels, I'm not sure they have bodies, but we'll have a body in this incredible perfected state. So he's correcting them in their thinking that they're limitless. They're limiting the power of God by denying the resurrection. But he also talks one more in verses 37 and 38, and he stresses the point. He says, let me also tell you, you're not only limiting the power of God, you don't have a proper understanding of Scripture. Now remember the Sadducees just clung to the first five books, so they, they liked Moses. They listened to the Pentateuch. So Christ goes right to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Um, and he uses this passage, and he's speaking to them of how the dead do rise. And Exodus 3 is that passage that talks of God when he has a meeting with, at Mount Morab with Moses in the burning bush. And he's telling him, you know, I'm the God of Abraham. In fact, let me read this passage. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look. So he's going to refer to this event. And he says, do you remember Moses? When I met with Moses and God made the claim back then, he says in 37 that um, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob... What is God, what is Jesus saying to the Sadducees there by referring to that verse, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6? What's the key word in that verse? I am. He doesn't say, hey, um, Abraham, I, I was. I am. That makes the reader, the one being spoken to, to be alerted, I am, that means he is. That's present tense. It, it's not saying of, you know, oh, I, I'm not going to say I knew Greg. Oh, I know Greg. Present tense. So I, I am the God of, they're presently alive. So here's he speaking to the Sadducees. He says, oh no guys, you are completely ignorant. They are alive. God said he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 38. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. They were not dead, they're alive. He's not the God of the, of, of the dead. They're present tense, he says, I, I am alive. Let me ask you, 
If God made a promise as he did to Abraham, and the covenant promises, I am going to bless your seed, give you land, and your seed will live forever. And he, but he's making a promise specifically to Abraham. I am with you. I'm establishing a covenant. If Abraham dies and never sees that covenant again, that's kind of nice to know that somebody in your seed for all of eternity is going to have some connection and living. But it's sweeter to know that you will experience that joy. And that's what he says to him. I'm establishing my covenant with you and with your seed. There's a reality that you're going to enjoy it. And that's what's being spoken to, to Moses in the I am. They are still alive. They are present. So the grave, he's telling the, the Sadducees, is not the end. The grave is not, that's all she wrote. The grave is not the words, it is finished, it's done. There's a living hope when we come to the grave because we have a what? A powerful living God. So the resurrection hope, the living hope, is a reality. It's a truth that, that is precious to us and it's a truth that should drive us. And as we think of, of this whole resurrection season and all that, that God has done for us, may I be reminded that one day, because Christ rose again, one day I'm going to die. And as I have the bodies, you know, Carl and others are very kind. You keep asking, how's your ear? How's your foot? And, you know, and it's, it's only going to get worse, isn't it? I know you're, most of you aren't there yet, but as we continue to decline, but we're reminded of that hope that we have, the hope of the resurrection. It's a reality that's in our lives. I want to come to a couple challenges to, to bring us in a moment. And we look at, at life as there's death all around us. Um, we look to the numbers where we're tracking them continually was on the news during the whole COVID mess and what's happening and this many Americans have died and this many, this many worldwide. It kept going, getting worse and worse. We, looked at, um, we look at what's happening in Ukraine and the body bags that are being carried, the mass graves that are being covered. And I just riveted one picture, which just made me sick, of a city after the Russians had pulled out, and you see this buried body of this mound of dirt, but the arm was sticking out. You know, death is all around us. If you're into sports, Washington um, commanders, football player, Dwayne Haskins was crossing a road um, last week, 24-year-old, killed instantly. And we're continually confronted with the reality that death is all around us. But you know, for the child of God, when we look at, at the victory for death, when we look at the defeat that our bodies endure, it's not the end. Death isn't victorious. Death is not final at the grave. We understand that everything's going to be reversed. In God's perfect time, that we will step present, absent in the body, present with the Lord, but our body will be perfected and united with our soul in heaven. And in God's timing, everything will be made right. No flesh and bones will have an incorruptible body. We'll have an immortal body or a perfected body. You know, if I were to put one word on the screen, and I, I didn't, but if there was one word that describes the Christian, what would that one word be? I would say that one word would be the word hope. Ephesians 2.12, where Paul's defining 
Um, the state of the unsaved person in the first three verses, all of us were there, but then the words change, but God who's rich in mercy in verse four. But you come down to verse 12 and he talks about the unsaved, that they have no hope. They're without God, that they're alienated from God. But it's those words that it says in Ephesians 2, having no hope and without God. But 1 Peter 1, you're familiar with it in verse 3? He says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we, the believers, have this living hope. So look at the whole resurrection and what we're about to celebrate and what Kevin's going to do with the little people tomorrow, the resurrected Christ, and what we will enjoy in drama presentation. The reality of it is, as Christ rose again, we have put our faith and trust in Christ. We will rise again also. So all of this being the backdrop. Let's talk about death for a moment and may it be so uplifting and encouraging and talk about how to die well. Um, in light of the resurrection, meaning unless Christ comes in the rapture, we're going to die. But that's okay, right? Our hopes in Christ, we're good with that. Um, how do you die well? First point I want to make, the need for careful preparation. I'm not talking about contacting Paul Maselli and writing a will, though. That's awesome. Um, we need to have wills. We should have a will. Um, but the need for careful preparation. You know, we, we plan events, weddings. How many of you took over a year planning a wedding for your child or for yourself? Any of you? Okay. Um, some of it was, was shorter, but we plan for a year plus. Lynn and I enjoyed our 40th um, anniversary, which really was our 41st because of COVID going um, this past um, end of September. But I was over a year planning this thing out. It was just fun, but all of the details, I knew every day what we were doing every hour. Where and I had things booked, and you know, we, we spent so much time planning. How much time do we spend planning for death? Charles Hodge, a theologian, um, early 1900s, said this It's important that when we come to die, that we have nothing to do but die. That is rich. I mean, let me say that again. It's important that when we come to die that we have nothing to do but die. This is what he means by this. That we're not bringing a bunch of problems when we come to death that we wish we could do differently. That we're not at that point and saying, boy, I have this regret. Oh, and I haven't made it right yet. Or I have this unforgiven person that I haven't forgiven them or I haven't asked forgiveness from this person or I haven't um, lived this way or, or I haven't written this note or I haven't told my, my loved one that I love them enough or I'm thankful. You know, we have all of these regrets. Let us get to that point where we're living to please God that it's like, God, oh, I'm to die in five seconds. I'm ready. You know that, that we're at that point where we have daily planned, that we have daily pursued God, as I read in my, my devotions this morning in Thessalonians 2, to please God, that we have lived to please God, or chapter 1 of Thessalonians, that they were an example, they were imitators uh, of, of Paul and the apostles imitating God. May we be prepared because we have lived daily to please God. Yeah, I get it, we're sinners. I could tell you some of your sins. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, um, you know, I'm a great as anybody of a sinner. 
Um, but, but may we daily live to ask forgiveness from God. May we daily live to ask forgiveness from our, our, and our spouse, and they'll probably already say they've forgiven you. May we daily live in such a mindset that, that we're prepared to die immediately. Here's my, my second point. Be reminded that life is a, a completed plan. Can I just step back for a moment into, into something previous? God has put eternity in our hearts. I think that might have two meanings. Eternity meaning that people desire to connect with the all-powerful being. And I'm not being irreverent by saying those words. They may not know who God is. They're searching. That's why there's a crazy boatload of religions and cults out there. They crave for that spiritual connection. But I think there's also another part to putting eternity in our, in, our, in our hearts that we yearn for when we get older and we're breaking down. We yearn, we that have a right relationship with God, we start to, to yearn for that. I'm talking to Jim Gilanyi, he had to work late, wasn't able to be here tonight, but he and I were talking two weeks ago now. Um, he's been in the ER and they're trying to check out why, what's happening, thought it was you know, some strokes that he's having seems to be more some seizures, so he's not allowed to drive for, for six months. But he made the comment, you know, Pastor Dave, the older I get, it just is preparing me more and more problems for, for when we see God face to face. I said, you know, I've never had such thoughts until like recently with all these little, it's just, you realize God is not the, the run carefree and, and the youth, there's a point where I'm getting prepared. And that's, that's a good thing. So may we live to please God always. So secondly, life is a completed plan. Life is a completed plan. You know, sometimes from our perspective, we see somebody and say, man, they just died too young. I had a, a, a really crushing, sobering two-year time span. I came out here from Michigan, came here to church here, visited Katie um, in 2010 with the passing of my brother. And then a year later, Bob Purnell, um, Bob was a guy that I met in kindergarten in 1963, went through eighth grade, through high school, through college together. He was in, I was in his wedding, he was in my wedding. He suddenly dropped dead. Um, I'm sorry, not suddenly. He had cancer um, that he was fighting. It. Then a year later, my best friend in seminary, Bud Hall, who moved to Long Island after years of me begging him, and we pastored together for Long Island for a while, um, suddenly woke up dead one morning. You know, we look at these men that were 53 and 54 and, and we think, well, they just died too early. No, they didn't. These, what are you laughing because I said young men? <laughs> I'm, I'm old, that's why they're young. Oh, they woke up dead, that's what I said? They did, they woke up dead. <laughs> I'm excited I could hear you. <laughs> they woke up dead. But, you know, we think of, well, it was, it was too early. They, God, they died in the prime of their lives. No, they didn't. They had died exactly when God wanted them to die. You know, we don't die a day earlier. We, we have to remember that accomplishments in this life cannot be measured by time. They're not measured by time. You know, I think of, of men like David Brainerd missionary to Native Americans in the early 1700s, 26 years old he died. 
Or think of Bill, no, he was 29, I'm sorry. Bill Borden was 26, and he's the one that wrote the words, no reserves, no retreat, no regrets. Or Jim Elliott, who was 26, died in Ecuador. And he's the one that um, coined the phrase, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So when we come to the point of death, be prepared for it and understand the appointed day is the right day. Um, Adoniram Judson is quoted as saying these words, when God calls me home, I shall go with a gladness of a schoolboy bounding away from school. That's pretty good. You know, I mean, we have that, that passion that God, you mean today is my, my celebration day? Today's the day I get to see you? God, I'm ready because we have so lived to please God that we haven't been the center of our universe. God is the center of our universe that we have diligently pursued. God, I want you to be first and you alone. There's coming a day when we will no longer need blue cross and blue shield. There's coming a day when we will no longer need the duck and Aflac or Obamacare. We won't have to make choices. Is Medicare plan A best or is plan B best? We no longer need medication, no longer have pains or aches or heartaches or hear that C word, cancer. We'll no longer have to go through chemo or radiation Everything that this world has stolen, whether in physical health, by illness, accidental death, by war, by violence, it will all be reversed far better than reversed. It will be perfected, and we will stand before him. May we live today in such a way that God will be pleased with us in how we've lived. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for the glorious truth of the resurrection. God, thank you for the truth that there is a redeemer. Father, thank you that we did not have to earn your pleasure on our own. It would be an awful life. Wondering if we've done enough today to please you. Wondering if we merited your favor trying to weigh the scale of the good and the bad, which we would never be able to do. But God, thank you that the words were spoken on the cross, it is finished. And thus our salvation, once we cease trying to, to make you pleased by our righteousness, which is really filthy rags, and we accept the, the grace of Christ on the cross to pay for our sins, then truly it is finished. The price is paid and put to our, our account. God, until we see you face to face in the days or years that we may have left, may we live for you and serve you and be found faithful. I pray in Christ's name, amen.